Thank you. Am I on? Yeah. I, yes. Am I on? Good. Well, hello, Austin New Church. Um, gosh, what, a, what an interesting year this has been for all of us. But suffice to say, I really, I'm, I'm really grateful to be back here through all of this. And uh, you guys are a big part of me. You may not know that. I hope that you feel that from me. But I, I don't think there are five services over the last year of this church that I haven't watched. I have a couple of churches that are like home churches to me and pastors that I listen to. And this is one of them. So I'm, I'm very, so I feel more a part of you than perhaps it would even seem that I am because uh, it's been one of the ways that I've stayed connected spiritually this last year. Uh, this week is Giving Week. It reminded me of that preacher who his sermon was, I up my pledge, up yours. Um, think about that a little bit. But I, um, so Mother's Day, geez, I, I have never been asked to do a Mother's Day sermon. As a matter of fact, as a pastor for, let's see, I've pastored for 25 years. Mother's Day was always a, a day that was fraught with landmines emotionally for many people, positive and negative. Um, and so we always try to be incredibly sensitive because of the issues that are freighted within this day. But um, to that end, I suppose I have preached in 37 years, I've preached 10 to 12,000 sermons, lessons. And I don't know, I was telling Trey this morning, I don't know that I have ever done one quite like this. I, I'm going to do what the old literist, the great sports writer, Red Smith, who was also just a, a, a great writer, not only a sports writer, but Red said that the, the only way to truly write and to connect with the hearts of people is to sit down to the typewriter and open a vein. Because life is in the blood. Life is in the story. And so I'm going to do my best today to tell a story about my mom and me. And in doing that, one of the fears that I always have in commanding a pulpit and being disclosing and telling my story is that it could appear to be um, a little bit narcissistic, that I would overindulge in the telling of my story as if I'm the only one who has a story. But that's, that's actually the exact opposite of what uh, a minister would appropriately want to do in the telling of their story. In the telling of my story, I, I'm simply hoping to connect with you and remind you of your story. To some degree, to remind you that plus or minus 5% all of our stories, uh, to use the old dragnet line, the names are changed, the places are changed, but the stories are so similar. A pound of flesh is a pound of flesh. No one said that any better, and I just pulled this up because it occurred to me as I was thinking about my task here today and being a little bit daunted by being this disclosing and personal. I was thinking about one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, a fellow named Frederick Beekner. He has a little trilogy of memoirs that are 100 pages each, of Sacred Journey, Now and Then, and Telling Secrets. And I would commend those little 100-page memoirs to you. They're, they're brilliant. The foreword to his book, Telling Secrets, um, he said something profound that I think really makes my point for me. He said, I've called this book Telling Secrets because I've come to believe 
that by and large the human family all has the same secrets. Secrets that are both very telling and very important to tell. They are telling in the sense that they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition. That what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that very thing is often just what we also fear more than anything else to be known. It is important to tell at least from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are even if we tell it only to ourselves because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth and hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing it is important to tell our secrets too because in telling our secrets it makes it easier that way it makes it easier to see where we have been in our lives and where we're going. And it also hopefully makes it easier for other people to tell a secret or two of their own. And the exchanges of secrets between friends, those exchanges have a lot to do with what being a family is all about, what being human is all about. Finally, I suspect in telling my secrets that it is by entering that deep place inside of us where our secrets are kept that we come perhaps closer than we do anywhere else to the one, capital O, who whether we realize it or not, is of all, is of all our secrets the most telling and the most precious we have to tell. So I want you, as I open a vein, I want you to read a scripture with me. I think it's going to be on our screen. It's a very simple text from the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter and the 12th verse. Is it behind me? It's on the screen? It's on the, oh, we are, we're doing, we're technologically advanced. Exodus 20 and 12, have you got it? Read it. Um, would you read it out loud? Because I actually don't have it. Would you read it together? You guys with preacher's voices, it's real short. Let's read it with gusto. Go. Honor your father and mother. Let me give you a brief introduction to my mother because my mother is the reason these guys asked me to come and talk to you today. She was born in August of 1947. She is presently 73 years old. I just turned 53. My brother's 55 and my sister's 49. So you can do the math. My mom and dad got married when they were kids. My mom was born... The oldest of three sisters, she was born into a singing, musical family. My life, family reunions, Thanksgivings, Christmas, every day, essentially, my life was just standing around a piano singing four-part harmony and shape notes out of old paperback hymnals. Music in church is what my family has always been about. I said my mom was the oldest of three sisters. Interestingly, her mom, the lady I called Dabo, I don't know where Dabo came from, but I called her Dabo for 50 years of my life. My mom was the oldest of three sisters. Her mom was the oldest of three sisters. And so I had a grandmother and two great aunts, and I had a mom and two aunts. And my grandparents and my great-grandparents lived on the same hill together, and we lived just down the road. One of the fortuitous things about living in Arkansas and everybody getting married so young was I had both my great-grandparents, my Dabo's parents. 
I had both of them till I was 26 years old, great-grandparents. So getting married at 16 and having kids at 17 um, had its advantages. On the other side, my dad was one of 15 kids, um, and people often ask me, Catholic, and I say, no, Northeast Arkansas. <laughs> so that's the world that I, I, I come from. My great-granddad was the pastor in our family, and my mom and her two sisters with her mom and dad went to Lake City Pentecostal Church, a little ways from Paragul, the town where we grew up. And... But for whatever reason, when my mom was 12 years old, my grandparents, Dabo and my granddad, decided to visit Revival Center Pentecostal Church, a little church there in Paragul, the church that I was later baptized in. And that night, when Lavelle and Dorothy George and Shirley, my mom and her two sisters, Janice and Wanda, walked down the middle aisle of Revival Center Pentecostal Church, little did she know that there was a 13, 14-year-old boy sitting there on the pew. Um, a 13, 14-year-old kid, again, that was one of 15 kids, raised hungry poor, hungry, hungry poor, went to church by himself, walked two miles, didn't matter if it was cold or hot, he went to church by himself. His parents weren't church people. When he was five years old, his older sister, who essentially raised him, because my grandmother, she had kids, 15 kids, no twins over a 24-year period, so the older girls took care of the little ones. And when my dad was five, his oldest sister, or his older sister that cared for him, Darlene, passed away of leukemia at the age of 15. My grandmother became very bitter very, very bitter at God, and so my dad, as a little boy, just walked to church by himself. He was sitting there beside his girlfriend that night at Revival Center Pentecostal Church when a 12-year-old girl with black hair and black eyes came walking down the middle aisle. He said, when I saw her, my heart skipped a beat, and he said, I looked over at Diane that I was sitting beside, and he said, I gently began inching away. <laughs> my grandmother they were from the better side of the tracks. My grandmother, my grandmother took compassion on this little boy that walked to church and they began picking him up on the road and getting him to church and taking him home. And it was the highlight of his life because he got to sit beside that pretty little black-haired, black-eyed girl. A few years later, they were 16 and 19. She was about to turn 17, but they got married. By the time she was 27... She had a third grader, a first grader, and a two-year-old, and she was the president of the PTA. She was always precocious and older than she was. She dropped out of school her senior year because she just couldn't be a mom and finish her biology classes. She dropped out of school, and that was always a tremendous embarrassment to her. She was the quintessential Proverbs 31 woman that could do anything, but she dropped out of school, so at 38 years old, when I graduated... She sat down with me and she said, you know, I've always been embarrassed that I don't have a high school degree. Would you mind if I get my GED and start the college too? She didn't want to take away my steam. I told her it would be wonderful. I told her I would even like to go to college with her. So for the first year, I drove back and forth with my mom to college. Not most days because we took the same classes and she took copious notes. So I skipped most, most classes and <laughs> used her notes. Four years later, she graduated with honors and started a 25-year career as one of the most respected early childhood educators in Northeast Arkansas. Nine years ago, my mom was retiring. 
after this storied career, teacher of the year every other year. She was retiring, but her last semester, she and dad, over the Christmas holiday, went on a Hawaiian cruise, and something went wrong on the cruise. She was addled. She, they thought it may have been a mini-stroke, but something just wasn't right, and she came home, and suffice to say, in the last nine years since that Hawaiian cruise, my mom has taken a slow, unrelenting, grinding descent into dementia. Seven or eight months ago, it became clear they were living in Little Rock. My sister and her husband pastor a, a great church in Little Rock, New Life Church. He's actually the executive pastor there. My mom and dad had been with them. My sister, as sisters and daughters often do, was carrying the brunt of the load. And my sister has done that the last five years, and it became clear that it was my turn. So we moved mom and dad from Little Rock back to Paragul, back to their hometown where my families have been on both sides for a hundred years. We moved them back to Paragould, and for the last seven months, I now have been spending Sunday night through Wednesday morning taking the load off dad and spending time with my mom. I wrote this just uh, a week after they had moved into their house. I'm sitting this morning at the bay window in the breakfast nook of my parents' new-to-them home. After 25 years away, mom and dad have moved back to our hometown of Perigold, Arkansas. The hope is this will be their final move, a fine and reasonable prayer for sure. Sitting here this morning, mom just wisely explained, we have come back home before we go home. Indeed, mom. For nine years now, dementia has slowly but unremittingly eroded my mother's capacity to remember not the distant decades gone by, but the minutes, even seconds, most immediate. Not memories embedded in the marrow of her soul, but the breakfast in her stomach eaten only moments ago. For the past nine days, I've been showing mom her new home for the first time at least a hundred times. Of course, as has always been the way with her, she is sweetly grateful with each introduction. And between each of these lovely and loathsome introductions, she and I are singing old songs. Who knew? Sacred hymns and crooner standards, because he lives and I get along without you very well, amazing grace and the shadow of your smile. Every, every verse, every word, the ones I misplace, she fills in for me with alto and smile. And as I sit with her, I'm reminded of the ancient psalmist King David's words, thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart. Ah, those comforting words in my heart. My mother is proving them before my very eyes, proving that the heart is a place far and mercifully deeper than the brain, than frontal lobes and cerebral cortexes. And I remember the words of a modern psalmist, Tom Waits, words my dad could have written for sure. And as I think about it, words I'm watching my dad write now as he brings mom home, as he brings her back to this, her home before home. Waits wrote, in a land there's a town, and in that town there's a house and in that house there's a woman and in that woman there's a heart I love I'm going to take it with me when I go so my life now is Sunday night I tuck my kids in and around 8 o'clock I head out for a 3 hour and 45 minute drive across Jackson and through Dyersburg, Kennett, Missouri and I land in Perigold I get there in time. Dad's always waiting on me. It's our time. Mom is in bed now, and 
I get there about 10, 30 or 11 o'clock. We wait, watch a late night Western. I wake up Monday and Monday and Tuesday I give my dad a break from the unremitting questions that come again and again and again and again. From the agitation, the annoyance, the, the life of a woman whose frontal lobe now is almost completely gone. I give him Monday and Tuesday. And mom and I have forged something that I could have never predicted. I could have never imagined. Mom and I have forged um, a harp. Just as David played the harp for Saul and calmed his demons, the demons of dementia for my mom seem to be calm most when I just take her and get her in my car. And we drive every back road in northeast Arkansas. We've driven every one of them seven times now. And we take paperback hymnals with us and we sing. And we drive and we sing and we stop at Greasy Spoons and Meat and Threes. I know every back country diner in northeast Arkansas now. My arteries are sufficiently clogged for the last seven months of barbecue and meat and threes with mom. But we sing. And I want to share a video or two. I have learned to capture these holy moments, moments that, for want of a better phrase, I, I feel like I should take my shoes off every time, but I've just learned to put my camera up on the dash and just turn it on and just let it roll. And in the last few months, I've even began posting those on my Facebook page. The clip that I'm going to show you now is a clip of Mom and I, somewhere between Monette, Manila, and Leechville, Arkansas, as we sang a song. I reminded her of the song that my grandparents sang at every church in northeast Arkansas through the years. It's an obscure song. You've probably never heard it called One Lost Sheep. But I sang the song, and Mom picked up and began to harmonize with me. So you have that first video. This is what I'm doing with Mom these days. Here, baby. All right. Okay. I'm going to take off. I'll take off, and you jump in where you can. Okay. Ready? I'll do it. Safe were the 99 in the fold. You're too low for me. Oh. Okay. Say No. Safe. It's a soprano song. Okay. Safe were the 90. There you go. Okay. You're a man's voice, so okay. you can do it. Okay. Safe were the 99 in the fold. Safe though no, the night were yes. stormy and cold. But said the shepherd. When counting them all, one sheep is missing, there should be one more. The shepherd went to search for his sheep, and all through the night. O'er the rocky steep, he searched till he found him. With love bands, he bound him, and I was that one lost sheep. I sound like my mother. You do sound like your mother. All right, second verse. 
in between. There in the night, he heard a faint cry from that lost sheep just ready to die. Then in his arms, to shield from the cold, he brought that lost sheep safe back to the fold. Sing it. The shepherd went out to search for his sheep and all through the night o'er the rocky steep he searched till he found him with love bands he bound him and I was that one Lost sheep. Haven't we all been that lost oh, sheep before? At some point in our life, before salvation came, we were all the lost sheep. You got, your eyes are leaking. I know. You know, The irony is, in that exchange, filled with love, she doesn't know I'm her son. This past Monday, as I was driving down the road, we were singing Because He Lives, and the woman who scarcely can remember yesterday, she scarcely can remember two minutes ago, sang with gusto, paused and even wept as the Spirit moved on her, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Spirit filled our car and she knows I'm Stan, she knows I'm someone that she deeply loves and as the song ceased we quit harmonizing. She reached over and she squeezed my hand and she said, I want you to know I really appreciate you. I squeezed her hand back and said, thank you, I really appreciate you too. She said, and I want to tell you something. I would be your mother if you would like me to be. And it occurred to me that this woman who's been taking in vagabonds and homeless folk and street urchins for years, the woman who's never let a stray go by, human or canine or feline, it occurred to me that this woman who knows my name is Stan and knows that she loves me dear but has long since forgotten the nature of her. She is still her. And she was sitting beside someone that she knew intuitively had lost their mother, and she did what she only knows to do. She asked me if, if I'd like her to be my mom. I, I almost, selfishly, because it hurts every time she says that. She looked at me two weeks ago and said, what is your mother's name? She asked me all the time, now how did our families get to know one another? But this week, as she See singing because he lives. She said, I would be your mother if you would like me to be. 
I choke back the words because normally I would say, well, yeah, I would like that. You have been for 53 years, but I notice when I do that to assuage my own pain that I notice that it confuses her. Sometimes it hurts her. Sometimes it even brings her shame. So I gathered myself, squeezed her hand back and said, I would like that. I, I could really use one of those these days. She squeezed my hand and patted it, and she said, you got it. I'll be your mom. So that's my life these days with mom. Now, ironically, and this is the thing I wanted to tell you, and these are the secrets that you don't tell. This is the stuff that I don't put online. Ironically, coincidentally, or otherwise, nine years ago as my mom began her journey into dementia, almost at the same time, in Nashville, Tennessee, pastoring a church called Grace Point, one of my congregants, a country singer, um, if you pastor in Nashville, you have a few country singers in your church, a country singer told the BBC in an interview, they had asked her about same-gender marriage and the, and the, and the same-sex marriage amendment act that was coming out. They had asked her about it. She said that her pastor was inclusive and her church, quote-unquote, was gay-friendly. On those weak credentials, Westboro Baptist decided to make their way all the way from Kansas and picket us that next Sunday. And I began a journey. I began a journey that lasted two and a half years with our congregation. We were one of the first evangelical churches at the time to venture into those grounds. And for two and a half years, we prayed, we studied, we talked about inclusion and what it would mean. In December 2014, I did my same gender wedding for Michael and Josh, two people who were very close to me. Michael had been our first minister of music at Grace Point 10 years before, but had finally come out to himself, made peace with his own soul, lost his marriage, lost his kids, um, left because our church wasn't ready for it at the time, but he and I remained friends through the years. And finally, he was marrying his partner of eight years with the advent of the Marriage Amendment Act and... I was able to do their service. Two weeks later, I stood up in front of our congregation, told them what I had done. And the very next day, knowing that I had a board meeting where I was going to get eviscerated Monday night, 10 of my 12 board members who were my dearest friends in the world were going to walk out, knowing that I was about to be slaughtered and maybe even deserved it because maybe I didn't do everything right. Hindsight's 20-20, but I, I did my best. But that Sunday, after making the announcement and realizing that we were going to lose most of our congregation, and two weeks later I would announce my own divorce that was a part of the repercussions. My wife and I were not on the same page with all of this. There were so many, there was so much fallout, so much, for my kids, for me. But I think the most painful part of the whole deal for me in reflecting back six years is my mom and dad. Because the next morning after making the announcement, I had always, the preacher kid, the good athlete, I had always been kind of the fair-haired child, and I didn't realize how much making my mom and dad happy and how much pleasing them really meant to me. But the next Monday morning, I got up, and I drove four hours straight through to Paragould. I walked in my mom and dad's living room, and this child of theirs that had always pleased them and that they were so proud of, I sat down, and for four hours, I... God, I poured my heart out. I told them about 
this journey I had been on about conscientiously what I had to do, and my mom and dad wept. I had all but died to them. After four hours of begging them, I stood up, they hugged me, their hearts were broken, and I got in the car and drove four hours back to Nashville for the board meeting that broke my heart further. But I can say, with everything, the most painful part of all of this has been, I suppose at 50 years old, I am capable psychologically of disappointing my parents, but that's not the deal. These parents, sincerely from a fundamentalist evangelical background, have not only been disappointed by me and devastated by me, they worry themselves sick. There are some in our family that have even ventured that my mom's dementia and my decision to become an inclusive pastor are not coincidental. There are those that have even speculated that, that I and what I've done has driven her to this place. For the next four years after inclusion, my parents and I were very estranged. They're wonderful people, but we were very estranged. We were uncomfortable. We never talked about church. We sold our building, our 20-acre campus, an $8 million campus that they had been a part of watching build. We sold it. They didn't even know it happened. They never asked me about church. We just talked about Cardinal baseball and Uncle Fielden's cold, and we just had this long-distance relationship, and I grieved. My dad told me from time to time that my decision had taken years off of their life and he felt that dementia had somehow shielded my mother from the worst of the pain. I, I have some sense of what LGBTQ people go through and out of that, it, certainly mine doesn't compare to their experience, but out of that I, I did realize and I've said often, if you say you're an ally to a group of people and you're not getting hit by the stones thrown at them, you're not standing close enough. At some point, Paul said, we are all filling up in our body the sufferings of Jesus, which are incomplete. Our secrets are the same. Our stories, we are a part of one another. And we, we know one another in the power of the resurrection, but we also know one another in the fellowship of suffering. And two years ago, I sat down with my mom and dad and said, I have loved you so much, and I have grieved myself sick, missing you. They sat silently and looked at me, and I said, I just don't understand how my brother, Steve, two years older, he's a reverent, sweet agnostic, lives in Memphis, doesn't go to church, and you guys are fine with him, and, and yet we can't even talk. You won't, you won't ask me about my life. I, we miss one another for months at a time now, and, and yet you and Steve, he doesn't even believe in God, and y'all are fine. My dad looked at me, and he said, well, he's our son. I looked at my dad, and I said, well, what the hell am I? You talk about an awkward moment. My dad looked at me, and the only thing he could say was, Son, I don't like it when you cuss like that. I said, Oh, my God, Dad, what the heck am I? And he looked at me so strange as my mom wiped tears, and he said, You've always been our pastor. I broke, and I said, Well, I resign. He looked at me, and he said, You don't have to. We've already fired you. Mom kept wiping tears, and I said, well, would you mind if I go back to being your son? Mom looked up, and she said, we would love that. You've always been the love of our life. So for the last two years, I travel all around the country working with churches, advocating for LGBTQ people, 
I've performed three funerals in the last three months because I've become a pastor to people who live in small towns in Delaware and South Dakota and Idaho who have no access to a church like this. I've performed three funerals for teenagers who've taken, taken their life because of evangelical pressure and shame. My life is fully lived for the LGBTQ community, working with churches. I'll drive back to Dallas tonight working with three churches there who are moving toward inclusion. But seven months ago, God gave me a gift. And though dementia is no gift, and I am certainly not pining nor looking for a silver lining, I've gone home, and a new world has opened up to me. Aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and churches and people who wrote me off, I have felt them watching as mom and I sing our hymns and I don't know what they expected they've all blocked me on Facebook and Instagram I think they hadn't seen me as so long they thought that I would have like a pointed tail sulfurous breath yellow eyes and talons but I can tell it's messing with them because what they're seeing is actually a son who still loves to sing because he lives and is taking care of his mom and now I'm getting calls from people that I would have never gotten calls from. Now I'm posting about my mom and hundreds, thousands of people that had forgotten me, that had a funeral for me, literally a prayer meeting funeral for me, are commenting. Some of them are even crossing over and commenting when I post about the LGBTQ community. And then sometimes the heartbroken people in the LGBTQ community have been rejected by their parents, are posting on my mom's site, and they're talking about how they miss their mom and their queer marriage has changed everything for them. And my family's having to read that. And my queer friends are having to read this. And there's this confluence of, of holiness that I could have never planned. I could have never predicted. And I'm reminded that Paul said all things work together. The wheat and the tares, the good and the bad, they grow together in such a complex admixture that that you could have never designed it and you can't separate the two. And queer people's hearts are being healed watching my mom sing and the oddest thing, I have to work when I'm there the two days with, I'm with mom. I could work 24 hours a day which is mostly calling and talking to LGBTQ people who are heartbroken and needing a pastor to help them walk through and make peace with themselves and perhaps persuade their parents not to kick them out of their home. It's all I do. And now between songs, I even take those calls with my mom sitting there. And you know the oddest thing? My mom sits beside me and she's not disappointed in me anymore. I don't even think she has a theology about queer people anymore. She just loves. She, she doesn't have a theology imposed upon her any longer the dementia has washed that part but she sits and I watch her cry as teenage kids pour out their heart about how they can't go home she doesn't talk about Romans 127 she I don't know that she even knows that I'm a pastor she just knows I care for people and sometime in the zoom call she'll even talk to them and I watch this woman who's been so disappointed now somehow dementia 
has washed all of that and all that remains is her heart, something far deeper than the brain. And sometimes she takes over and she talks to those kids and she tells them, I'll be your mama. I, I have enjoyed ministry for 37 years. A big part of it was I loved making my mom and dad proud. I am really enjoying being my mom's son again. And I am grateful to sit back and watch the work of the Lord, the work of spirit in my life. I'm grateful to watch it happen. I wrote this in between two posts about mom the other day, and we'll close with a, one more little three-minute video I want to show you before we go. But I wrote this sitting in the car with mom on the side of the road, and I read it to mom, and she gave me a few points that she thought should be in there. This is what I read to mom, and this is what she helped me with. And I posted it. A church I've been consulting with for almost two years has now officially decided to lift any and all restrictions previously imposed on its LGBTQ plus members. For the past week, they've been working on an official announcement for all forms of media. Earlier today, they sent a rough draft for my review and input. I must first say it was a lovely piece and it brought me to tears more than once and surely it goes without saying I am incredibly grateful for their sincere diligence and humbled to have been a witness to their process. When I sent the draft back, I offered only one edit. It was in response to a line near the end of their piece. That line read, as a congregation, we now invite our LGBTQIA siblings to join us as we gather weekly at the Lord's table. So I looked at my mom and I said, how about this change? As a congregation, we will now join our LGBTQIA siblings at the Lord's table, the place they have always been. Of the many realizations afforded us during this two-year period of discernment, none has been more revealing than this. The act we as a church have always called the Lord's Supper has actually only been our supper. And all along, the Lord has been with those we rejected. But now we have experienced the gospel through the forgiveness offered us by our LGBTQ siblings. They, along with Jesus, have invited us to his table what we once believed would be a statement of full inclusion for others, we now understand to be a statement of repentance by our congregation. My mother added that last part about repentance. So all the way, Fanny J. Crosby wrote in the hymn that Mom and I sing, all the way my Savior leads me. Dad and I still don't talk about same-sex marriage. We still don't talk about church. He doesn't ask me about sermons that I preach. But I walked around the corner the other day. He was sitting in his man cave, and he was on the phone with one of my uncles that has been particularly hard on me and my decisions. And my dad, without knowing I was standing there, I overheard him say, well, I don't understand all that stuff, but I know Stan. And I'm glad he's home, and he's really a good man. And like I said, I don't know about all that theology and all the gay folk, but 
He's taking care of his mom really well. And I don't know what to do with all that. And instead of walking in and having a scriptural conversation, I backed up slowly. And the Lord healed my heart a little more. So these are the frail admixtures of good and bad, suffering and joy, pain and goodness that blend together in all of our lives, aren't they? So here's the last clip of mom and I, and this is her singing her favorite song about heaven. Okay. Okay, you ready for what I'm going to say? Yep. So many places. You want to hear a song? Please. Of beauty. really hard and the words are gone and the feelings are so harsh you start singing and the tears start flowing and the spirit starts ministering and as thy days are so as your days are yes so shall your strength be that's Bible that's Bible and even more than that is true. It's true. Whatever your day, so shall your strength be. You have lived that a long time. There's no sense in changing it now, is there? No, not at all. It is hard, the time that you're in. The memory loss thing that has been getting worse and worse and worse has got to be hard to live with. Oh, stay. It's hard watching you go through it. I, I wish I could split it with you. You know, you say things like that, and then you finally realize there's a few people in the world that you might actually mean it for. 